So today's interview is with the endlessly fascinating Fulton Armstrong. Fulton was a CIA analyst for years and was considered one of the top minds on anything related to Cuba. Frankly, just a personal opinion. I think he still is. He's worked in Mexico, all over Central America, and in counter-narcotics at the National Security Council, National Intelligence Council, CIA, and the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Like I said, he is fascinating. Here's a compilation of some of his classic sound bites from this uh, interview, just to get you a little excited. I can't go into too much detail. You have to do a full-fledged application. They do psychological assessments, rigorous polygraphs. The public doesn't know that all intelligence is a conflicted product. It's a game of, of chess, and you then move your person. You provoke them, they provoke you. But there were unwritten rules, the Americans mm. on FX. And I watched it, and, and I, I admit, as entertainment, I really enjoyed it. Really? TV and movies, they kill as a message. Why would you kill somebody who does the same thing you are for the other team? Officially would be a loaded word, but can we cross it out? Yeah, I think so. I don't know if you're a scuba diver, but if you, you dive, it does weird things to your ears, does weird things to your sinuses, to your eyes. It does weird things to your brain. Now, I really suggest, before listening to this interview, if you haven't already, listening to our The Secret Sonic War episode. It was actually, I think, our most popular episode uh, in season two. So check that out before listening to this. I mean, you'll still be able to follow, but nonetheless, in this interview, we don't just talk about the CIA and Fulton's work, but uh, really, this is a follow-up to that episode. And now, Fulton Armstrong. So here with Mr. Fulton Armstrong... How many years, and maybe you can't answer this question, how many years were you a CIA analyst? I w- for, for many years. <laughs> <laughs> for many years. The, the problem is that if you're an analyst, you can get different assignments. Uh, but sitting at an analyst desk wearing green eye shades and elbow pads or whatever those things that, that analysts reputedly wear. I see. Uh, those years are probably, I don't know, 15 15 or maybe longer, but one of the great things about being an analyst with a good reputation is that you get asked to go do special things, to go work in the White House, which I did for four years, to go work in in foreign embassies, to go do special projects and all of that. So you could be on the payroll for a total of 30-something years, but actually be sitting on the line, we would say, or in a cubicle as an analyst for half that or two-thirds of that. And what were you doing at the White House for four years? I was one of two, or there were three of us, but one senior director, and I was one of two directors for Inter-American Affairs, which is what we called the Latin America desk back in the National Security Council during Bill Clinton, and I did two tours. We called them dog years, so we didn't... It was very, very tough work, very long hours and stuff, so I did two years, went to the National Intelligence Council, from the National Security Council, the National Intelligence Council, for about one year, and then went back to the White House for two more years. And how does one, where'd you go to university? Georgetown. How do you go from Georgetown to uh, CIA analyst? Indirectly. <laughs> I, wanted to be, I wanted to be a journalist. Okay. And I had a great time doing some journalism, uh, mostly radio in Taiwan. Had a really good time. Translated programs, did programs mostly in English, but every once in a while would be interviewed on a program about something where I had some expertise in Chinese. 
uh, and I really liked it. And I really like journalism because I've always been into information and I've always been into using foreign languages. I, have for, I like using foreign languages. How many languages do you speak? Uh, a, a, a previously New York version of English. <laughs> I haven't lived in, in the city for many years. Uh, Spanish, where I originally learned in Spain, two years of education in Spain. Uh, and Chinese, which I learned in Taiwan. Got it. Okay. And I'm sorry, I cut you and off. And so I so was you're... doing journalism, which was really cool. And then when I came home, I got married and I came back uh, to the New York metropolitan area, to Connecticut exactly. And I said, okay, I want to continue, continue being journalist. Uh, but it wasn't hard to break in. Uh, at that time, it was an economic recession. This is a late, this is already 1980, uh, Couldn't do it. So it was Needed. hard to break in. It was hard to break in. Yeah, yeah. got it. Was okay. hard because because I was competing against kids who had done a little hometown newspaper sort of thing, had written in American publications, not in foreign languages. I really couldn't sell myself as a foreign correspondent. I was a foreign-based local reporter. I see. But, eh. So I went down to Washington, which is a city that I've also loved uh, for many years, and worked for a member of Congress, a, a former foreign service officer, not former CIA officer. Mm. Uh, who's brilliant, really cool guy on the, on the House Foreign, Foreign Affairs Committee who gave his staff an education, gave us space to, to learn and to walk by his side and learn from him. And I really was very much taken with moving from journalism as information into intelligence as information and see if the idealist in me, and I think most journalists are are idealists, most analysts are idealists, that we believe that good information should get us 60, 70, 80% of the way to agreement on what's going on around us. Hmm. And then also to a certain percentage of agreement on what we should do about what's going on around us. Right. So it was, I said, I want to do this somewhere else, continue doing information, continue now. I really enjoyed the policy process and foreign affairs process on the Hill and watching the executive branch. This is now already the Reagan administration, okay. where I saw, hmm, they're a little bit different than the Carter administration. Maybe they need a little bit more information. So then I went on to, uh, to be an analyst. And you go to them or they come to you? I, I can't go into too much detail because yeah. both elements were present in my case. But whether they come to you or not, you have to walk through the front door. You have to do a full-fledged application. They do psychological assessments, rigorous polygraphs. Back then, the polygraph was both the counterintelligence polygraph, but also one they called the lifestyle polygraph. <laughs> it, was, it was quite stressful because it basically gets into the, some of the most intimate parts of your life and possible experiences and things like that. Last question I'll ask about the CIA. What, what's the, and I'm curious if, if you can tell me what the real number one answer is, but what's the most misunderstood aspect of the CIA amongst the general public? I think the most misunderstood thing is that people do not realize that the CIA, like all intelligence organizations, including in other countries, Canada, the UK, Australia, all of the countries that I've ever dealt with, have the same, what I call the original sin. It was a sin that they were born with that because the people who pay the bill, usually the Congresses, but also the presidents themselves, the executives, didn't want to have one agency doing operations, which would include covert operations and covert action, and the collection of intelligence, the clandestine collection of intelligence, 
they didn't have one agency doing just that and a separate agency assessing the intelligence and making information by providing context, looking for patterns, background, history, expertise, methodologies and stuff, make that information into intelligence. And so what they did was they put the two sides together. So what you have then is co-located in one agency two completely different cultures. One of them, especially the covert action part, is to create a reality. It's a policy tool. The mm. president directs them to go out and do something and create a reality. And the other one is to an analyze reality in an independent, disinterested, I'm not a player sort of capacity. And so you then have this competition that once the operators, including the ones that do what we call FI, foreign intelligence, instead of covert action, once covert action starts, the FI, I think history shows very well, the foreign intelligence mission gets downgraded and the quality of intelligence gets diminished because their job is to be cheerleaders for their own operation, which means cheerleaders for the president's policy. Right. Whereas an analyst is supposed to be independent and we like words like talk truth to power, speak sure. truth to power. Right. Uh, Similar to journalists. The analyst is supposed to be independent and unswayed. But you can't do that because of this original sin. You can't do that in as thorough a fashion as possible because half of your body, and it's the body, the half that's sexier, the half that's policy relevant, mm -hmm. the half that gets movies made about them, mm -hmm. it's that part winds up controlling the story. You asked what is something the public doesn't know. The public doesn't know that all intelligence is a conflicted product. That's a hell of a quote. If you could explain, or, or in this case, really remind our listeners as we get into Cuba here, what, uh, what spy versus spy is. We, I mean, the, there, there are very different contexts for the phrase spy versus spy. Those of us who use phrases like spy versus spy usually are using it in a derogatory manner. It means the spy industry of one country is going after the spy industry of another country for the game. Because one definition of a, of a success... Sorry, what do you mean for the game? Because it's, it's, a, it's a war. It's a game of chess or checkers if, with some of the dumber people. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's a game of, of chess. And you then move your person. You provoke them. They provoke you. But there were unwritten rules. There still are generally unwritten rules. Friends of mine had urged me to watch the series The Americans mm. on FX. And I watched it. And, and I, I admit, as entertainment, I really enjoyed it. Really? But it misportrayed the quantity of information that is, excuse me, the, the quantity of operations that are really and truly aggressive, much less fatal uh, and all. So that's the game. I punch you, you punch me. Uh, when I was a kid, my brother uh, would punch me in the arm. We'd go one for one. He'd punch me in the arm and I'd punch him in the arm. And then he'd punch me in the arm softly to see if I would reciprocate softly. It's, that's what spy versus spy basically means. And they're industries. They're industries that even though most of the s most sensitive operations have to be approved at the political level, including sometimes, many times, by the president himself. The agencies run operations of their own. I don't, I'm not saying that they're rogues. If they have the parameters to run operations on their own, and that becomes a lot of spy versus spy. It's, it becomes quite silly. 
actually, you know, I poke you, you poke me. Right. I cold pitch you, you cold pitch me, which is a term, a very provocative way of doing intelligence recruitment is to cold pitch somebody. And, and what does cold pitch mean? Without any preparation, without any friendship, you go up to somebody and you say, I know who you are. I know you have information I want. I will give you money or I will do X or Y or Z to get you to work for me. That's called a cold pitch. And it hurts people's careers. If you're ever cold pitched, it means that the other side sees you as so vulnerable as to be a moron. And correct me if I'm wrong, or maybe it's just in the case of Cuba, but spy versus spy isn't is generally, as you're kind of alluding to, not not doesn't include killing other people. It's 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 right. annoying, poking, making disturbing, but it's it's not you know killing someone to send a message. It's other things to send a message. Or am I wrong? I don't know. I I think that's from TV and movies. That's what I'm right. Uh, TV and movies they kill as a message. Why would you kill somebody who does the same thing you are for the other team? You don't want to be killed, so why would you kill somebody else? It's a game of moving parts around, of doing disinformation. That's part of the poking. You do disinformation against an opposing government or an opposing service, the target, we would call it, disinformation. And then they'll do it, disinformation back against you. I think to go step by, I want to first get one thing, kind of cross it out, because since we've last spoke, there was... And there's been articles since this, but there was an article uh, from the Times about microwaves where they interview one of the, uh, I think he was one of the original guys, a part of Russia and kind of coming up with the, the whole microwave invention. Can we officially cross out microwaves as being a part of anything that's going on in Cuba? Officially would be a loaded word, but can we cross it out? Yeah, I think so. I think that all of the experts agree that that while that man had unfortunate health side effects from something, I think he was suffering uh, from, uh, I don't remember what his illness was, that State Department had done many, many studies back during the Cold War when we were not overly generous to the Soviets and we were interpreting their actions in the most evil way we possibly could, that there was nothing there. And they had done a, a complete profound epidemiological study of everybody who had worked in those embassies during certain periods of time and who would have been co-located with this officer. Uh, I think he was a communications officer who had been co-located with him and would therefore have been subjected to the same sorts of microwave. They had looked at other people that had reported funny symptoms. And I think that there was no pattern, no confirmation, no corroboration of, of, of a linkage between microwave, even in that period, because the dosing could have been changed and stuff. That's, that's not to say that microwaves haven't been used in spy versus spy. They have been because they've been used to not only activate microphones, but to feed energy into this technology that they had, because when batteries would run down, you needed to feed energy into them and recharge them. I'm not expert in any of this stuff, but all of that has been pretty, pretty much roundly discounted by people who know a lot more than I. So now, what about, um, where are we in terms of the idea that this could be cicadas? There are several U.S. diplomats who were serve, serving in Havana at that time, during that time period, during the so-called attacks, who were, like everybody else, 
directed to carry around some sort of recording device to record the sounds of whenever they had heard uh, what they suspected was a so-called sonic attack. And there's, there are, there's at least one who has provided, but I, I've heard that there are two uh, officers who, while taking evening strolls, that's when the cicadas or crickets or whatever, there's a special name for these bugs, uh, were, were, were out, which is in the evenings and the humidity and stuff like that. They would particularly screech particularly loudly. And this officer, who's talked to a number of people in Washington and gone up and talked to a number of people on Capitol Hill of, in interested offices, and I imagine would be prepared to say this under oath under the proper circumstances with the proper protections of, of uh, his or her career, recorded what he or she knew factually to be cicadas, crickets, or whatever these things are, submitted the recording to this special entity that had been created to examine and analyze these recordings. And after a period of time, this individual got back the response that the analysis proved that those sounds could only have been man-made, made by some sort of technology. And to this individual and to his or her colleagues, this was pretty much prima facie evidence that the U.S. government, whether for technical reasons or political reasons or bureaucratic reasons, simply didn't know what it was talking about. We're not talking about that recording that the AP came out with, right? This is something Correct. else. Apparently, apparently, the AP reporting is a different report, re- recording, yes. Okay. But I don't know. They were, they were asking everybody to send in all suspicious sounds. Right. And I know that at least these two individuals, plural, uh, were part of this particular initiative, and the conclusion to them was pretty solidly that the U.S. government was either cooking things or incompetent. So is let me play you one more thing. I, I think it's relevant to this, and then I have a question that might get a little bit more to the point. So at this point uh, here in the interview, I played for Fulton a part of another interview I did with an amazing listener who called in, left a message, and then I called back and interviewed her about some of the information she had found as it pertains to this whole whatever happened in in Cuba. Uh, her name is Mary Mayhew. Mary's actually on Twitter at Team Giant Squid, and she has a podcast called Whatever Remains Podcast, and that's on Apple Podcasts, uh, wherever you listen. And she said this during our interview, which again, I play for Fulton. I think the thing that I found that was recently the most interesting was um, Alexander Professor Alexander Stubbs findings on it being on the noise that they were hearing um, being the mating call of the Caribbean cricket. Right. And that he could, you know, and I, the, the time that I, I put out, uh, you know, I, I tried to talk to him about it myself and he was saying, well, we're still, you know, having to have my peer review of the paper. This is what we're, this is what we're putting forward in the sound waves. And if you go through and you read the actual paper, it's, it's pretty convincing that that is what, people were hearing was the sound of that cricket, the, the actual sound vibrations and everything that the metrics that they were able to capture match up pretty well. And so I was, you know, I was like, well, if it wasn't, if, if what happened in Cuba doesn't have anything to do with noise, if that's solved by, by a cricket, then what, what actually happened? What was the, what was, 
what was going on with it. If you can, if you can untie the two things together that, that have been so closely associated with one another, then it, it becomes a much different story, I think. So I played that for Folden, and uh, this was his reaction, and we continue the interview. So I guess you were just speaking to that, essentially. That Correct. Yeah. Correct. And the unfortunately, the government did not they chose not to follow up when it was revealed to the government that, no, sorry, I know factually that those were these crickets or, or cicadas. The government didn't say, well, let's get a sample of the cicada cry and put them side by side and see if others that had been reported and confirmed as human, human origin or human man-made noises or whatever they called them, uh, and see the quality of the information that they already had. I think that the key thing here is that at each juncture, when government officials, I, I don't know exactly who I don't, or where and what agency, had on repeated occasions, they had opportunities to look at alternative explanations. They refused to. When they later said, these people are using words like sonic, but there's no sound relationship and there's no scientist anywhere who says that sound can inflict these sorts of symptoms. When they say attacks, but there's no evidence of any staging, which is a sophisticated operation, you're going to go after 20-something targets with, a, with technology that doesn't exist, and you're going to stage these and you're going to escape completely undetected because people did look out their windows when they were hearing these sounds. Say, okay, well then start asking the right questions. And they, they didn't want to do it. I don't know why. Again, I, it's very easy to say this was all political. It could be just bureaucratic. It also could just be gross incompetence. But they've now allowed the tracks to be covered over by so much residue for, for two years, two plus years, that we're probably never going to know the truth. The only way we can get a little bit closer is to do a side-by-side -side comparison with the Cuba situation and the Guangzhou, China situation, where also there was an, uh, a, a number of, let's call them victims or patients, people claim, complaining of particular health issues that are still pretty misunderstood, pretty lacking understanding. We need to do that. We also need to look at who the original patients were and what their activities were after the so-called attacks. In one case, pretty reliable sources, multiple, but obviously you won't know unless you can talk directly to patient zero or patient one or patient two. The, but the pretty solid hearsay is that patient zero went scuba diving just weeks after his so-called attack. You, if you, I don't know if you're a scuba diver, but if you, you dive, it does weird things to your ears, does weird things to your sinuses, to your eyes, it does weird things to your brain. If you see the, the, the funny pictures, if you take a soda bottle, an empty soda bottle with the top on, and you take it down 60 feet, that, that soda bottle is essentially crushed. So it's a huge amount of thing. But you're, but you're healthy enough to go scuba diving. And word is, again, I have to repeat, this is multiple source, but still hearsay, uncorroborated, because no one will talk, right. is that patients one and two joined a pickup rugby team with some visiting uh, British diplomats, with some British diplomats and their visitors, and Australians, I think, as well. And also, if you're afraid that you have a brain injury, rugby probably wouldn't be on the top of your 
casual sports list? I mean, anyone who's objective, I would think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but how do you not go down the lane of this feels like politics and an American government that does not want a prosperous relationship with Cuba to continue? I mean, it, it, if, it sound, if it seems like it is uh, nature and it seems like people are getting injured, there's not a question there, but that it's not from sonic attacks and the government does the opposite and starts saying sonic attacks – how does any logical, apolitical person not think this seems like it's something cooked up by someone within, within the under the Trump administration? And I'm I'm apolitical on the show. I don't I don't take sides. But I mean, you know, you got to call what something is. Uh, you know, right? For, I mean, for those of us who don't have scientific or medical backgrounds, life has a lot of mysteries, and we could think without knowing what's really going on that somebody who gets grossly ill was simply because of the Martians coming and attacking them. But if you find out that they live next door to a dentist's office that didn't have lead shields around its x-ray, and they, they ate, slept, and worked in x-rays 24-7, you then have a scientific explanation for a mystery. The problem with this one is we have a mystery where scientists have been told to go and fetch, but with an, an artificially contorted uh, set of requirements. As an intelligence analyst, I learned very, very young, very early, and, and doing journalism as well, that you have to control the question. In this case, however noble the various doctors in Miami or in Philadelphia, the University of Pennsylvania, were, they never controlled the question. And when, to be, let's just, to be, what, what were those questions? The question was, how did sonic attacks cause these symptoms? And who is coming up with that? the question being based on, quote-unquote, sonic attacks? It was built from the U.S. government. Right. And people say, again, this is something that can't be confirmed by me, uh, that it came from several individuals from who have uh, intelligence affiliations. So just Andrew Jenks' opinion here, it, it sounds like a Mike Pompeo I don't understand how it could. It just sure. I'm not a mathematician, but I know that one plus one equals two, right? But we don't know if it's one plus one or point five plus point five plus point five plus point five. Okay. We just don't know enough. I would urge everybody to go back and read the brilliant editorial that was published in the Journal of American Medicine Association magazine on the same issue as the University of Pennsylvania authors. Uh, study was was published, and then the follow-up critiques okay. of the UPenn uh, uh, analysis and report that qu quite across the board, extremely legitimate yeah. and frankly more broadly based scientists and doctors than the Penn doctors that wrote the report, including the editorial board of JAMA, okay. they said that there are more viable alternative explanations, and they listed a whole range of them. And some of them we could think are goofy. How could a virus cause, cause it? How could uh, a parasite cause it? How could heavy metal poisoning from contaminated water or, 
or cigars contaminated with all kinds of bizarre fertilizers or pesticides. You don't know. If If there is a conspiracy here, one would probably be richest in saying the conspiracy to shut out alternative explanations and the conspiracy to exaggerate because while I've always resisted using words like mass hysteria. Which was one of the four editorials that was uh, in that follow-up piece. Right. Well, one was that, uh, I think, it, as I recall, uh, Dr. Stone uh, believed it was functional disorders, but whether or not you believed in their conclusions, they were doing, as I recall, what you were doing, which is crossing off a lot of the conclusions that were previously made. Correct. Basically, yeah. basically, you have to look at all of the, all of the alternatives, yeah. and it, that was not done. And so now we know. The other thing is, I don't like the word mass hysteria, but there is a contagion effect, a psychological contagion effect. People have better words than I do for it. That if you tell everybody to report every symptom, even in this beautiful office of yours, you tell everybody to report every symptom, you're going to see all kinds of patterns. And you're then going to reach all kinds of conclusions. The actual number of people who reported symptoms is very small. And the problem is none of the symptoms, they were all self-reported symptoms. None of them are detectable symptoms like residue of something in the blood or something on the brain or something, you know, with the eyes or the ears. It's just people reported headache, reported vertigo. And how do you test that? I think you've already answered this, but is there, I know you're not in the business of doing. If you want to go back into a conspiracy thing, I could lean forward a little bit more and say, if one nurtures alternative explanations for what's going on, one has to consider that indeed it is conceivable that there was a political factor in all of this, if you look at the broader circumstantial evidence of what the Trump administration has been doing in the Cuba relationship. They have used this as a pretext, not just to shut down our embassy, which is a skeletal staff that live together, almost like in a commune, in a formerly communist country. They live together. They have no interaction or very little interaction with real society, which is very sad because these are good officers. The ones who are down there, I've, I've met with them, they're good officers. But they're so pulled back by this administration that it doesn't work. They used the, as a pretext not just to voluntarily withdraw our officers, but to force the Cubans to withdraw theirs. Well, that's pretty telling because there, there's no health threat among them. Right. So it's, it seemed retaliatory. It seemed punitive to do that. And then if you look at what the administration has done last week, for example, a, a, a National Security Advisor John Bolton met in Miami standing in front of the insignia of the 2506 Brigade, which was a failed covert operation by the United States to invade Cuba under false intelligence that the regime would collapse if only we could hit this beachhead sort of stuff, announcing that we are back in regime change mode with Cuba. We're going to increase all of the sanctions. We're going to invoke this really horrific Procrustean law called Helms-Burton Title III, which allows anybody of Cuban origin, even if they were not American citizens at the time, to make claims against anybody who's, quote, trafficking in confiscated properties, 
which could be anything. It could be my grandmother's home in Kamagwe or something. It, that would suggest that there was, there's a pattern of intentions to anything that's done on the Cuba issue to not just reverse what the predecessor had done, because the, that has been one of their priorities, regardless of the U.S. national interest, right. to reverse what the predecessor had done. It's also to get back into really Cold War and punitive mode as if we're going to really crush a revolution, or it's really a lot less revolutionary now than it was before. They're, they're actually trying to do some pretty interesting economic reforms, haltingly, ineffectively, they're trying to do it, but that we're now in crush mode again. Right. So it would be consistent with that circumstantial evidence. Is there anything that I'm missing here? Is there any other updates that I failed to uh, bring up that you think is worth bringing up? No. The Cuban embassy had a really good panel on this of Cuban scientists and American scientists who laid, who laid it all out including the psychological aspects. Um, You've seen the conclusions in your research. So there wasn't anything truly unique okay. presented except the credibility. When you hear a scientist speaking face-to-face, -face, both the Cuban, they actually speak a common language more, more than we do. Huh. Uh, scientists are like, like other professions. Right. They understand each other, and they presented quite convincingly their research, their conclusions, and none of it supported the sonic attacks meme. That's a perfect way to end this. Okay, great. Okay. Um, look at the China stuff. I don't know enough, yeah, but look at ask. the China stuff. It seems to me the same goofy thing, but right. notice the policy reaction. If you study, going back to this idea of the circumstantial argument that, yes, the administration has exploited the issue, if not created the issue. Exploited for sure. Come on. Let's be honest. But exploited the issue for policy purposes and political gain. Look at the different reaction to supposedly similar situations in China. The fear of this administration that there would be an issue that could, that could uh, stir up the waters even more than the trade issues and the other issues we know about in U.S.-China relations. It shows, wait a second. How come you're not using the word attack in the case of, of China? How come you're not using the word sonic? Even though they reported similar type symptoms, the double standard only makes Cubans feel and people who believe that foreign policy should be based on a balanced assessment and fair, almost a blind assessment. Mm. So the, the temptation is to say, wait a second, this looks a little bit fishy. Do you have any sense of how the Cuban people feel about us right now? It's almost embarrassing for me anyway to hear about the, some of this. I mean, all of us, really. I, mean, I haven't been there since this last round of sanctions was announced, but I was there four months ago talking to old friends and old people who you can sort of monitor uh, and say, yeah, they might have overreacted before and they're overreacting now, so I'll take 20% or 30% or 40%. But I think what, what the Trump approach has done has put them into an even more deeply cynical mode about the U.S., but also, unfortunately, about the U.S., the American people. Damn. It's deeply cynical about whether the U.S. can ever do a fair deal. Right. That we just, we reverse this way too fast. 
yeah. uh, without looking at the strategic drivers or strategic interests that pushed us together, we just tear it apart. Yeah. And sometimes it's a little bit like a new wound that you tear skin, okay, but you tear skin that's already healing, yeah. you're going to have a deeper scar. Paul Armstrong, thank you very much. My pleasure. So as you know here on What Really Happened, I always enjoy speaking to y'all, the listeners. And I got a DM the other day from Allie, who was saying she identified with some of the feelings uh, that I had at the time in terms of my own depression. And she reached out talking about her tough time moving from her homeland, which uh, was just outside of Aleppo in Syria. And so I said she should come on the show for a few minutes and uh, talk about what that has been like. And, and she was nice enough to come on and open up. And here's the conversation. Allie, how are you? Good. How are you? Good. Uh, is it is it Ali or Al, 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 Alik? So my birth name is Alik. Alik. Um, Alik. Yeah. That's, uh, it's Armenian for wave. Um, but I go by Ali just because it's much easier for everyone. Because Americans can't say anything <laughs> other than American names. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Well, thank you so much for your very uh, thoughtful uh, response via DM. That was really nice of you. Oh, thanks for posting that. It was very helpful when I needed the most. Oh, good. Um, that's nice to hear. That's really nice to hear. Um, so you were born in Syria? Yes, I was born in Aleppo, actually. Oh, you were. And how, mm -hmm. how long were you there for? Or what, what year did you, did you leave? Um, so I was born in 90, and I moved here in 97. So I was there for about seven years. Um, and then we would go back during summer to visit family and grandparents and such. But um, since the war, none of my family members in Boston has gone back. And did you? Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. Did you still have family and friends, I, I assume, there? or? Yeah, definitely. Um, my dad's entire side was there. But once the war started, um, a lot of them left to um, Armenia and my mom's side, um, her brother still lives in this tiny little village called Kisab and that's more near the border of Turkey um, by the Mediterranean. Mm. So yeah, they were still there. And do you, what, what is, do you have any sense of what your neighborhood is, is now like if like, is your neighborhood been, been demolished essentially? My neighborhood that I grew up in it's more located toward the area that the government always had control of. Mm. Um, Aleppo, it's the second um, largest city in Syria, and a lot of it has been split. Um, some areas are rebel-controlled. Some areas are still under government control. Um, I'm guessing at this point that it's mostly under government control now, um, but I don't think the area that I grew up in had been completely... Um, ruined at that point. <laughs> and Ali, do you mind if um, I read from your the message you sent over uh, in the podcast? I don't... Um, oh, yeah, absolutely. That's <clears throat> totally fine. Okay, great. So, you know, you wrote, um, I've been in such darkness today and this was exactly what I needed. Uh, not so mm -hmm. much exactly what you needed or, or speak to that as well, but um, what were what was the darkness that you were feeling? Because I know that you you then mentioned uh, later on in the message or a sentence or two later that you're constantly missing my home country, knowing I'll probably never sit foot in, a, in Syria again. Could you uh, maybe 
I hate to say like take us to that place, but what is that like feeling that that darkness? Um, it's pretty emotional. I mean, it it's hard because it's hard to explain just because I mean, in the future if we are able to go back, you know, if it's safe enough and if it's if the US has trust enough for its citizens to go back and forth, um I'm sure I could go back, but it's another also feeling of to be there. Like, do I actually want to go back? Because um, I feel like it's going to be so different. Um, I lost some family members. I'm sorry, I didn't know that. um, Thank you. Um, So I I feel like it's just not going to be the same, even if, you know, in the future it was okay to return. Um, So in my mind, I feel like I've just, have concluded that I'll never be back there again. And it just, I miss it in a lot of ways. I miss the countryside. Um, and it just, sometimes I think about the people that I've lost there and the country that is probably long gone from what it used to be. And I think it's just mourning that reality. And as someone who only knows Syria through what I see on television or in documentaries about Mm -hmm. the war, maybe this is an opportunity for myself and a lot of listeners to know about Syria through another lens, which is what you were just talking about, the, the gorgeous side of it, the people that are so wonderful. Uh, Could you speak a little bit to that for those that have only seen kind of the one side of it? There was always some sort of respect for one another. Um, And even just going to the market down the street with my mom, um, we would always call like, you know, the man who would be working there, I would call him Amo and Amo actually means uncle. Even if it's like a stranger, it's like, you're always addressing people with this affection and respect and kindness. Um, and just the country itself is so beautiful. Um, so Kesav especially is just so green and it just smells like the entire country just smells like jasmines to me. Um, hmm. So I always just remember those little things when it comes to Syria itself. I just really wanted to sincerely thank you for, for reaching out and uh, opening up about this. And thank you for just having that interest. Um, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to the What Really Happened interview series. My name is Andrew Jenks. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook at Andrew Jenks. If you could be so kind, it actually really does go a long way if you're able to rate the show if you like it uh, or give us a a review. Uh, That's on Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much. And thank you for listening.